So for nine years, Kelly Walsh kept a black bear she named Teddy as a pet. She raised this bear since it was a cub. Well, one night she went into Teddy's steel cage and the 350-pound bear turned on her, mauling her to death. One friend commented, she's done it a thousand times and on 1001, something happened. A supervisor with the Pennsylvania Game Commission commented, why this woman chose to go in the same area that the bear was in is beyond me. It's a fatal mistake. These things are not tame animals. They're wild animals. One pastor, when commenting on this, made this statement, I don't care if you name it Teddy. Sooner or later, bears do what bears do just like sin will do what sin does. Friends, you and I must remember sin is a predator and Satan is on the prowl seeking to devour us. And instead of dealing severely with sin, some of us have made pets out of our predatory sins. We've forgotten the warning given in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis. It's quite graphic, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching, ready to spring, crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. I'm reminded of John Owen's classic book called The Mortification of Sin. He writes these words, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. He continues, each of us is in a life or death battle with sin. It's a battle that can't be won by willpower or works, but only by the power of the Holy Spirit who brings the cross of Christ into our hearts with all its sin-killing power. Well, that brings us to Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. If you have your Bible with you, open up to that passage. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that as our gift to you, or feel free to follow along on your mobile device. We also have the Bible app on our mobile app. I'm going to ask you to stand, and today I'm going to read this passage. So I invite you to follow along in your copy of the Scriptures or up on the screen. And let's be reminded that God put what he wanted for us in a book. This was initially written to a church, a church that gathered in Rome. And we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher so that we interpret it correctly and apply it to our lives today, right? With all that you came in with, all the baggage, all the garbage, all the struggles, all the hurt, all the pain. So as we understand God's word, we're going to ask him to apply it to our lives. And we come under the authority of God's word now, his inspired and inerrant word. Listen then while I read. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, 
you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received, oh, this is such good news, the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. God, now would you take your word and uh, thank you that it's already powerful. Lord, would you cause us to be fully engaged right now in our minds, in our hearts, and uh, also, so importantly, in our wills, that we would want to hear, we'd want to listen, that we'd want to respond Lord, as we're gathered here, as others are engaged online, we think of our persecuted brothers and sisters around the globe today. Would you give them courage? Uh, they ask for uh, prayer that they would remain faithful. And Lord, that you would use them even where they are for your glory and your honor. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You can be seated. This section begins with a phrase, so then... That takes us back to what we discovered last weekend when we were in the first verses of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. I can't wait to read this verse again. There is therefore now, right now, no, zero, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So here's the summary of what we learned. Your position in Christ deals with the penalty of sin, and your practice, how you live that out, with the Spirit deals with the power of sin. Well, today we're going to dig into how the Spirit enables us to defeat the power of sin in our lives. Hey, how many of you have been reading Romans chapter 8 this past week? Go ahead and raise your hands. Look at the hands that went up. That's one of our assignments we made last weekend. And if you've not been doing that, let me commend that to you. Simply every day read the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. And we're praying to see what God's going to do in our lives individually and as a church. We also made a document available called Who I Am in Christ. Uh, you can pick up that out at the Welcome Center. If you want to get that online, go to Sermon Extras on our website or our app. Recently, I think it was a week ago, I was talking to a young adult. I think he's like 20 years old, and he told me very humbly that he's memorizing the eighth chapter of Romans. And so I said, well, where are you in there? And he, I think he said something like verse 18. And then he said when he's done... He plans to memorize Colossians chapter 3. What a good word for us, right? To be looking for ways to get God's word into our heart. Well, this week, he sent me a text with a link to some worship music. It's put out by Emmanuel Worship that 
link he sent me contains all the words from Romans chapter 8 put to song. And if you want to access that resource, go to Sermon Extras. There's a link there. I had the passage we're on today on repeat all week. Well, today we move from what God has done for us to what God expects from us. So think of it this way. As a result of having no condemnation and having now the companionship of the Holy Spirit, followers of Christ have a new focus, we have a new family, and we have a new future. Let's consider first a new focus. We've been given so much, haven't we? God has given us so much, and now it's our turn to live that out. Check out verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He uses the word brothers. That literally means from the same womb. So watch this. If you're a born again believer in Christ. You are a brother or a sister to other born-again believers here and all over the globe. It communicates how close we are with other Christians. We're part of the same forever family. The word debtors refers to one who owes another and is therefore under duty to live a certain way. So if you're a born-again believer, the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you're in Christ, you're a new creation, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. But I wonder today if you'd be like, uh... I got a lot of the old that's come back in. And maybe too many of us today have fallen back into flesh living instead of faith living. Brothers and sisters, we do not owe the flesh any favors because it has never done us any good. And some of us feed our flesh way too much. And when we do that, that either produces self-indulgence, the more we sin, the more we cater to our desires and our lusts and those things that we want, it just creates more. So it's either more self-indulgence or more self-righteousness. And we live for the flesh, it leads to death. Sinful living is linked to death, but putting sin to death is linked to life. I came across a helpful acrostic, perhaps you'll find it helpful, for the word flesh, following long-established sinful habits. Charles Ryrie, who used to teach at Dallas Theological Seminary, referred to Romans 8.13 as the most important single verse dealing with the spiritual life. Because living according to the flesh leads only to death. What are we called to do? We're called to put the flesh to death. Some translations use the word mortify. That means to kill. All right, let me just talk candidly. Too many of us are way too passive about sin in our lives. We're like, yeah, I guess I I got some of that. We excuse it, we rationalize it, we blame somebody else, we minimize it, we're like, it's not that big a deal, it's just who I am, it's just what I do. But listen, to put to death the deeds of the body refers to slaughtering sin. 
in our life. Too many of us cater to the flesh. God tells us to crucify the flesh. Now, there are two aspects of putting the deeds of our body to death, which appear at first glance to be contradictory. So first, it's already been done positionally. Galatians 5.24, and those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Ah, but we must do it experientially. Colossians 3, 5, a command, an imperative, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, and then he defines it, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, let me see if I can bring all this together. We must apply by faith what God has already done in fact. And we see that in Romans 6.11. We must also consider ourselves, reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You've been set free from the power of sin, but you still have to fight against it. And this is in the present tense, meaning it's not something we do once, like, yeah, I tackled that sin one time a long time ago, and then we're done with it. No, we're to fight against the flesh. Listen, continually, habitually, and actively. This week I read a provocative post written by Tim Challies. It's called The Utter Devastation of Sin. And he describes in his article that he searched for different metaphors to describe sin. And the first one he thought of was Pepe Le Pew. Some of you remember him? Kind of that cartoon character. Wherever he went, stink went with him. He let out this offensive cloud of smell. So he wrote, sin is so evil, it leaves this lingering scent behind. But he wasn't satisfied that that's the best metaphor. And so then he wondered if sin is more like the wake that we see behind a boat that causes waves that ripple out. He thought, no, that's inadequate. And so then he thought of the devastation caused by a tornado leaving wrecked lives behind. Even with that, he wasn't fully satisfied because when a tornado's done, it moves on quickly. And so then he thought of a metaphor of a tornado which spawns hundreds of other tornadoes, each of which go in their own direction. And then he writes these words. The fact is that sin is awful, unbearably awful. Sin is evil, horrifyingly evil. And sin begets sin and spawns off into a massive, all-consuming storm. Let this be just one more reason to put sin to death, he writes, to search it out, pray it out, and through the power of the Holy Spirit to root it out. Now, some of you, I don't really know what you're thinking. I mean, how can I, right? But I wonder if some of you are like, man, it's a little intense, dude. Bring it down a little bit. I mean, what, what about the no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? That's true. But here, we're called to do some work. We're, we're called to deal with our sin. So put to death, that sounds extreme. But listen, sin is a severe problem. Sin defies God. It defiles 
us, you know what else it does? It destroys relationships. And I see some of you, yeah, I've been part of causing that. And some of you have been on the receiving end of that. In your marriage, in your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, out in the community. One pastor writes this, you don't try to trick it, train it, or tame it, you terminate it. You don't put it aside or put it in a drawer, you put it to death. Sin is under a death sentence and we are to take part in its execution. Well, let me give a caution here. We're told to slaughter sin, but would you know we're to do so by the Spirit. (laughs) One pastor said, fighting sin without the Spirit is like open hand slapping a bear. (laughs) It isn't going to go well for you. See, it's not a matter of me alone doing it, nor can I just sit back and wait for the Holy Spirit to do it. I don't have the power to stop sin on my own, but what I do have is the power to submit to the Holy Spirit. I don't trust my own power, nor do I sit passively back and wait for sanctification to somehow just happen to me. Doesn't work that way. Some of us think, well, if I get a little bit older in my faith, I'll just suddenly get holy. (laughs) Doesn't work that way. Here's why most of us go south if we don't give attention to our spiritual life. Friends, listen, it's not an either or, it's a both and. It's a beautiful balance. I must do it by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit chooses to do it through me. So these are complementary, they're not contradictory truths. Now, let me give you an example of this synchronicity, Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13. It says, work out, it doesn't say work for your salvation, it's like work it out, work out your own salvation, do it with fear and trembling. Notice this next part, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We work out what he has worked in. And get this, he gives us the will to want to do it, and he helps us do the work to do it. I must do it, but it's God who works in me to do it. He has his role, I have my responsibility. We could say it like this, I cannot do it without the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will not do it without me. Oh, let's think Old Testament. I think of how God gave Israel the promised land. By the way, that's Wisconsin, in case you're wondering. But, <laughs> but his people had to go in, possess it, and make it their own. It was a gift, but they also had to go after it, claim it, fight for it, settle in it. Well, let's look at Joshua chapter 21, verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it. They made it their own, and they settled there. Think of our own salvation. It's a gift, but we must receive it to make it our own. 
It's also how sanctification works. We're given all we need for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1, but we must, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. Now, maybe you're tracking along with this, and you're going, how does this work in my life, in my world? Well, let me give 10 practical ways to help us slaughter sin in our lives. Now, some of these are going to have more traction for you than others, so maybe even as I go through this list, ask the Lord to give you two or three of these that you're going to say, yeah, i I got to put that into practice. Number one, declare your allegiance to Jesus Christ through baptism. See, when you get baptized, you're publicly identifying yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. You're saying, I once was that, I once went that way, I'm now fully in, I'm following Jesus for the rest of my life. We have a baptism coming up a week from this afternoon, and already over 15 people have signed up. That's good news, but guess what? I think there's a lot more who haven't been baptized yet. You've been saved, you've been born again, but you've not been baptized. And some of you think this way. You're like, ah, I got all this stuff in my life. I got all this stuff. My language is bad. I'm not doing this right. I'm going to wait till I get more mature. It's not how it works. No, after you're saved, the next command is to get baptized, commandment given by Jesus himself. So it's a matter of obedience, not a matter of maturity. Number two, you know how when babies are born, they have this like soft spot on their head? It's like, don't touch that, right? You don't want to cause any damage. Hey, you probably have a spiritual soft spot in your own life. You know what it is. You're thinking about it right now, and you're hoping nobody else knows what that is, but God knows, and you know. It's good to just identify it like, whoa, that's my soft spot. Third, recognize this about sin. Sin is a slippery slope. And sometimes people are like, well, how far can I go and it still be okay? We shouldn't think that way. We should stay as far away from the cliff as possible. Because once you start to slide, it's slippery. Number four, when you do sin, confess quickly. Repent immediately. Number five, I first heard this from John Piper many years ago. It's very helpful. I commend it to you. He says this, turn from sin within the first five seconds of the temptation. Those first five seconds are critical. So when you're being tempted to say something, you're like, ooh, I got this. I just want to say it. Don't say it. Those first five seconds are so important. You're being tempted to do something, go somewhere, do something you know isn't right. Those first five seconds turn away. Number six, starve sin. Don't make any provision for it. Number seven, place hedges between yourself and sin. 
You won't do. Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes to not gaze lustfully at a virgin. Job 31, 1. What's your hedge? What are you going to not do so you don't sin? Number eight, look for the way of escape. That's a promise. When you're being tempted, God provides a way of escape. Look for it and take it quickly. Number nine. This is so important. Fill your mind with good things. Last week we talked about garbage in, garbage out, but works the other way. You put good stuff in, good stuff comes out. And number 10, be filled with the Holy Spirit daily. Friends, Jesus paid a debt he did not owe, and we owe a debt we can never fully repay, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Friends, followers of Christ have a new focus, we have a new family. And we have a new future. Let's look at our new family. I'm in verse 14. Meet me there. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Notice this promise is for all who are led by the Spirit, not just for a few. We've been given the Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us. Our responsibility is to follow him as he leads us. The Greek word translated led means to show the way, to bring it also means to carry. It can also mean controlled. It's in the present tense, meaning it's to be a daily, moment-by-moment practice. Hey, if you're looking for a way to pray, and some of us fall into just bad habits with prayer, we say the same thing. I commend a verse to you. You could turn into prayer yourself. It's from Psalm 143, verse 10. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. If you've repented and received Jesus Christ, John 1.12 says you're a child of God. There are no naturally born children in God's family, but only those who've come to him by faith as a result of the new birth. And if you've been saved, he now calls you son or daughter. Oh, some of you really need to hear this verse, Isaiah 43.1. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. <laughs> Do you know as one of God's children, you are his? Isaiah 49, 16 says, God has engraved you on the palm of his hand. Listen to the intimacy the Almighty longs for in 2 Corinthians six eighteen. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Think with me about the parable of the prodigal son, right? He like, dad, I want my money. He leaves, he goes off, he wastes it. He wakes up and he's in the pig pen. Literally, he's eating the food the pigs are eating. He's like, how did I end up here? This wasn't my plan. And he starts remembering what it was like when he was back home. He starts remembering his dad. He prepares a speech. And in that speech, his desire is to be accepted, hired as a servant, and his idea is, well, maybe my dad will just hire me and he'll let me work in the fields. So he heads back. Well, while he's coming home, the father is waiting. He's looking. He can't wait for his son to come back. He sees his son and he runs to him. The son's ready to give his speech. The father doesn't let him finish. Do you know why? Because his son isn't a servant. His son is his son. And he says, welcome home. Welcome back. And he embraces him 
my son who was lost is now found. Brothers and sisters, as children of God, we can now live in freedom, not fear. We see that in verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Servants do need to fear, but sons and daughters of the kingdom, uh, no fear, freedom. Hebrews 2.15, we don't have to fear death. Deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Perhaps you struggle with fear. Well, check out 2 Timothy 1.7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. The second half of verse 15 tells us we've been adopted into God's family, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Adoption is the process by which a person who does not belong to a given family is formally brought into it, made a full legal family member with the rights and responsibilities of that position. In that culture, adopted children enjoyed the same privileges as those children who were born naturally. The word adoption, interestingly, means to set or place. That's so much better than the common phrase we hear today, put up for adoption. The reason we shouldn't use that phrase, it has horrible roots. You see, beginning in the 1850s, orphan trains carried more than 120,000 children out of New York City away from the families they're born into. And the train would come into communities in the West. The children were put up on the platform on display, waiting to be claimed. And those who weren't claimed were taken off the platform, put back on the train, only to do it all over again at the next stop. I want to give a shout out to those of you who have adopted and to those of you who have made the loving choice to place your child in the home of someone else. Those of us who stand up for the sanctity of life are often criticized for only caring for the preborn. But are you aware, according to Barna Research, that practicing Christians are more than twice as likely to adopt as the general population? These findings also showed practicing Christians were more likely to adopt older children children with special needs, and others considered hard to place. One Edgewood couple, they were in the 9 o'clock service, has done an embryo adoption and is in process of rescuing another child. Are you aware there are nearly half a million children, half a million children in foster care in the U.S., and more than 100,000 are waiting and available for adoption? Some of you have served as foster parents. Way to go. Others of you have served with safe families for children. Well done. Justin Taylor writes about an experience an American couple had when they adopted two children from Russia. The creepiest sound I have ever heard was nothing at all. My wife Maria and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union on the first of two trips required for our petition to adopt. Orphanage staff led us down a hallway to greet the two one-year-olds we hoped would become our sons. The horror wasn't the squalor and the stench, 
although we at times stifled the urge to vomit and weep. No, the horror was the quiet of it all. These children did not cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort, for love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped crying. The silence continued as we entered the boys' room. We read them books filled with words they couldn't understand about saying goodnight to the moon. What's that book about anyway? But Saying goodnight to the moon and cows jumping over the same. But there were no cries, no squeals, no groans. Every day we left at the appointed time in the same way we had entered, in silence. On the last day of the trip, Marie and I arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the minute we received our adoption referral. We had to tell the boys goodbye as by law we had to return to the United States and wait for the legal paperwork to be completed before returning to pick them up for good. After hugging and kissing them, we walked out into the quiet hallway as Maria shook with tears. And that's when we heard the scream. Little Maxim fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell. He seemed, it seemed, he knew maybe for the first time that he would be heard. On some primal level, he knew he had a father and mother now. I will never forget how the hairs on my arms stood up as I heard the yell. I was struck, maybe for the first time, by the force of the Abba cry passages in the New Testament. Ones I had memorized in vacation Bible school, and I was surprised by how little I had gotten it until now. His scream changed everything. More, I think, than did the judge's verdict and the notarized paperwork. It was the moment in his recognizing that he would be heard that he went from being an orphan to being a son. If you have repented and received Christ, you can call the Almighty Abba. Because born-again believers are adopted into God's family, one of our delights is to cry out, Abba, Father. That word cry is emphatic. It means to call out loud, to shriek. (laughs) We have the amazing privilege of calling the awesome, majestic, all-powerful God of the universe, Abba. No, that's not the name of a Swedish swinging group, singing group from the 70s, but I guess it is. But here, Abba is an untranslated Aramaic word meaning daddy, papa. It's an expression of familiarity. It's an expression of intimacy. Used first by small children, but continued throughout life as part of the language of the home. I was thinking about that. Abba communicates relationship. Father communicates reverence. Now, this term of endearment speaks of an intimate relationship. It was used by Jesus when he's out in the Garden of Gethsemane. He cried out, Mark fourteen thirty six, Abba, Father. 
All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Friend, you can approach Daddy God, Papa, Father, with confidence. As you and I learn from how Jesus prayed, as we commit to do his will, whatever that might be. We have a communion, we have communion with God because of our adoption, and we can communicate with him because he invites us to call him Abba. Oh, there's more. On top of that, according to Galatians 4, 6, notice this verse. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's what the Holy Spirit is crying. See, if you're like me, there are times when you may wonder, does God really care? Well, it's at those times the Holy Spirit goes to work in yet another way. Listen to verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. What does he bear witness? That we are children of God. The Spirit himself, that's very emphatic. This is the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, not some inanimate object, not some power, not some kind of Star Wars kind of force. We have a dual witness of our adoption into God's family. Listen, we cry out, Abba, Father, and the Spirit echoes that. And he gives testimony that we are a child of God. According to 1 John 4, 13, one of the roles of the Spirit is to give us certainty about our salvation. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives inner testimony with our spirit that we are adopted into God's family. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 speaks to that. He's put his seal on us and put it in our, the Holy Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Ephesians chapter 1, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The Holy Spirit confirms our adoption, and therefore we can have confidence that we are children of God. He gives independent testimony and he corroborates the testimony with our own spirit. According to Deuteronomy 19.15, a matter can only be decided based on the testimony of at least two witnesses. So one pastor says it well. Our human spirit says, I'm a child of God, Abba, Father. And the Holy Spirit says, yes, She is a child of God, Abba, Father. And out of the mouths of two witnesses, it is established, it is settled, and it is sealed. Followers of Christ have a new focus. We have a new family and a new future. Well, let's look now at our new future. Perhaps you heard this week the iconic musician Prince was in the news. Okay, not Prince himself, his estate, You do recall Prince has some Quad City connections as well. You see, Prince died from an overdose in 2016, but he did not leave a will, which made everything very messy. His entire estate worth over $156 million, but his surviving relatives will split less than $6 million of that. Those who are related to Jesus through the, no, through the new birth won't just get a portion. They'll inherit the full amount of his inheritance. Look at the last part of verse, or the first part of verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God 
fellow heirs with Christ. Galatians 4, 7 says something similar. You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. So our spiritual inheritance works differently than inheritance here on earth. Here we get an inheritance, or we might get an inheritance when someone else dies. With God, you get your inheritance when you die. And as an heir of God, you are in God's will and you share in God's family fortune. Ephesians 1.18, that you may know what is the hope to what he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? 1 Peter 1.4 says that inheritance is guaranteed. Would you note the phrase fellow heir? That's a co-participant or sharer. So if you know Jesus, everything he has is yours. Hebrews 1, 2 says that God appointed his son heir of all things. Hey, you don't just get a portion, a small little sliver. You get it all. And being a fellow heir with Christ means everything Christ has, you have. A fellow heir is different from multiple heirs. Multiple heirs receive a share of the estate, but joint heirs inherit all the estate together. Everything Jesus has, he gives to you, and Jesus has everything. Is your mind blown yet? Wow. God has given us so much. And it would be so easy to think, well, that means life's going to go easy for me. Uh, Verse 17 isn't over. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Friends, suffering comes from being identified with him. Every Christian will suffer with and for Christ because sonship and suffering go together. This theme is going to be developed in greater detail in the verses to follow, but suffice it to say, we must go through grief in order to enter glory. We are the heirs of God, but the full benefits of this will not be poured out on us until eternity. Our present grief prepares us for promised glory. And in the meantime, we'll share in the sufferings of the Savior. Since Jesus suffered, we should be prepared to suffer ourselves. Listen, some of us think something's wrong. I'm suffering. No, suffering doesn't mean that something's the matter. No, it means it's a mark of our sonship. Philippians 1.29 is a good corrective for us when we wonder why we're going through stuff. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Acts 14.22, a passage that you generally don't hear a prosperity preacher expounding. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Ah, but suffering doesn't get the last word. We've read the final chapter. The story of God ends with glory. Because we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. Oh, just a couple verses, Revelation 3.21, Jesus says, I'll grant him to sit with me on the throne. Revelation 20, verse 4, martyrs came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The Voice of the Martyrs is one of our Go Team partners, and in this month's magazine, they focused on persecution in Nigeria. One story caught my attention. After three dozen Fulani Islamic militants burst into a pastor's house, they kidnapped him and his family, telling him that they might kill him. Pastor Emmanuel was unfazed. He said, I've given myself over to God. I'm ready to die. 
After walking for many hours, Pastor Emmanuel finally arrived at the kidnapper's camp where he began the most difficult month of his life. During the daytime, he was bound, blindfolded, and guarded. And at night, he and other kidnapping victims slept on the ground where maggots crawled around their hands and feet. Emmanuel trusted God to sustain him through whatever the militants had planned. This is what he said. I had faith that God was there with me. And then he gave a message. That message is for you and for me. A message to brothers and sisters around the world. He said the same truth that sustained him during those long months in the militants camp. Depend on God in every situation. Friend, you don't owe your flesh anything, but you owe God everything. And followers of Christ have a new focus, a new family, and a new future. 